Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. We're unpacking, kicking off this hour, our Theology of the Body series, and we're talking about an interesting topic, and that is lust. Uh, It's a topic that's really interesting to hear because I think this is one of those moments where our Catholic faith separates us, in many respects, from other faith perspectives. So we're unpacking Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body series. We're on Catechetical Talks 24 through 27. And joining me today is Father Tim Grumbach. He is the chaplain at Bishop Alamany High School in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. He also serves with many youth-facing organizations such as Young Catholic Professionals, Life Teen, NET, and other programs forming the next generation of Catholics. And today we're unpacking the topic of Theology of the Body. I have really enjoyed this new section of Theology of the Body that we're diving into on the Sermon on the Mount, where we actually unpack this key passage from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 27 through 28, where we read, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so today we're going to unpack this. What does adultery of the heart mean? What does this have to do with threefold concupiscence and that interior life of the human person? Does what you think actually come out as to a sin? Could you think something that's a sin? You can't. We're going to talk about that today with Father Tim Grumbach. Father Tim, welcome back to Trending. Always good to be here. And it was a wild summer. I was all over the place. And yeah, definitely with Life Teen and Focus and Net, but it's good to be settling back in at school. And they've actually got me teaching classes this year. And so I'm really excited to uh, to take on a classroom full time. And uh, it's a very different way of life, but it's really uh, opening up my heart to these students in a new way. So I'm glad to be able to be here with you. Thanks for joining me. Let's talk about adultery of the heart. In Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, Pope St. John Paul II starts to point to that key passage from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew. And Pope St. John Paul II is emphasizing that we're talking about this challenge in the culture of this desire of the heart and how our interior life, what actually goes on in our interior life, actually matters. And Pope St. John Paul II, in kicking off all of this, Father Tim, we've been building on these key concepts, and we already unpacked the original states in the garden, such as original innocence, that God's intention for the human person was this original happiness, this union with Him, where we understood ourselves so well that even in our nakedness, we were comfortable, and the spousal meaning of the body was understood, the mystery of the gift of life, all of that was present. But after the fall, comes this great challenge. And St. Paul in Romans actually talks about how we need to understand now that the commandments, even after the fall of the human person, are still written on our human heart. And with that, tying it into what Jesus Christ says about our interior life, Pope St. John Paul II is taking our focus to ponder what does it mean when we talk about sins of the heart? Right. And he reveals the human heart as giving meaning to the whole human person, and I, I love that he, he looks at this line, 
which is one of the most challenging lines in the gospel, especially today when lust is so prevalent. And a lot of the times, maybe our experience of lust is almost like we're, we're victims of a culture that is throwing so many images at us and a, mm. a, a, a cultural mm. and sexual revolution that is really going on the offensive against us. So Jesus's words that those who look at a woman with lust are committing adultery with her already. So these are really challenging words. It just shows that Jesus is deepening our hearts at the same time. First of all, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that he has not come to abolish the law. But in each of these moments, he is calling us to a deepening of the law, recognizing the law as more than simply our actions, but is an expression of our hearts. And the human heart is where we find that the meaning of who we are, that I cannot emphasize this enough, Jesus is not going to command anything of us, that he doesn't also give us the grace to accomplish it. Mm. So we may hear this as like, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to not look at people in this way, Jesus. And in saying that, we're, you know, we're kind of missing the point. He's not going to ask us to do anything he doesn't give us the strength to do as well. So right. Jesus is right. deepening the law to our interiority and calling something greater out of our hearts that we may not feel that we can accomplish on our own. There's a significant line where Pope St. John Paul II says, we're dealing with a desire directed. And I think that's significant because I was with a group of young people recently and a young man asked me, he said, I'm really trying to understand that if there's a thought that occurs in my head that, you know, maybe there's this a desire for a woman that initially comes up where I'm thinking about this woman or I have this image of her in my head, is that immediately a sin if I have that? And we were talking about how there's a difference between how you might experience a thought and whether or not you indulge with it. And that's why I think what Pope St. John Paul II says when he talks about desire directed is it's what we do with our thoughts. How do we direct our thoughts once something occurs, especially for men who are so visual? I remember reading a book that really chronicled how visual men are, very different uh, for me as a woman and just in general. I was shocked by just the way a man can hold an image in his mind very differently from women. And so when you mentioned earlier that Jesus is talking about how our heart and our human body combine with our senses, all of this directs this link, as Pope St. John Paul II refers to, in this direction of the body and the senses to make this link for us to understand things such as the blueprint for the human body, that we have mm -hmm. an intellect and a body, that they're not separate, uh, that we're rational people who can know and love. And with that, that means there's a sense of honor that we give to the body. Right. And the, the whole idea of fleeting thoughts that, uh, or intrusive thoughts, right? Without going mm -hmm. into any mm -hmm. details, as always, uh, as a confessor, I hear a lot about intrusive thoughts or fleeting thoughts or, you know, are my thoughts sinful? The question comes up a lot. And I say, you know, the sacrament of confession is the sacrament of God's forgiveness of our guilt. And our emotions, these fleeting thoughts are not things that cause guilt in our hearts. But what is our relationship with these thoughts? Do we, you know, these thoughts will come and they'll be fleeting, but do we do what we can to dispel them? You know, do we let them be nothing more than distractions which come and go? Or do we hold on to them? Do we use them to entertain ourselves? Do our thoughts begin to shape the way that we interact and relate with other people? That is when it starts to take on that more sinful dimension of mm -hmm. am I using my thoughts that uh, leads to certain actions? Or am I aware that, you know, these thoughts coming up in my heart are a very real part of what it means to be human after the fall. 
and St. John Paul II goes deeply into that in this section as well, is that we have to be honest. There is a pre-fall and a post-fall experience of humanity, and we very much live in the post-fall experience of humanity, redeemed by Jesus Christ, of course, but we are still experiencing that concupiscence, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, that we have to recognize the reality of where we stand as humans. Let's be where we are standing on our feet, and that's where God wants us to love and to be aware of our feelings, our thoughts, but know that there is a discipline to the way that we use our thoughts and our feelings, knowing mm-hmm. that our emotions, they come, they go. How do we use them and how are we aware of them? I like to think of it as active versus passive. We can have mm-hmm. a thought or experience that occur, but it's what we do with that, right? And right. passively, we can make the mistake of not doing anything, right? And that is still a problem if we think, oh, well, hey, I'm just having these thoughts. I'm just going to stay here. Maybe not take it further per se. But so that is an action in and of itself versus passive. You have this experience and you choose to redirect your mind, your actions. And then there's active thought where we're entering into that desire and we're directing ourselves into those thoughts. So I think that's significant because we don't have these kind of conversations. And if you tie this, as you said, Father Tim, to concupiscence, that fallen state of human nature, I think it helps to reveal a little bit more. Let's talk a little bit about the threefold concupiscence. It's interesting because it's only with the fall of the human person that concupiscence becomes normative among people. Fundamentally, there really was this underlying sense of goodness about the human person, all of creation, but in particular, it was a human person who was very good. And part of what I love about Pope St. John Paul II's work is that he emphasized God's original vision for the human person was that original state of happiness and union. And with the fall, that severing of grace occurred. And so it's not the choice of God to give us concupiscence to have this threefold temptation, but it's what happens when we're severed from that life of God, when we miss the gift of what God has given to us. So let's talk a little bit about that threefold concupiscence of flesh, the eyes, and pride of life. Right. And uh, one of my least favorite sayings is when people will say like, well, Father, I've sinned, but I'm only human. I'm like, well, (laughs) you you know, sin does not make you more human. Sin is not what makes you human. I actually would say that sin actually makes us less human, but also I have to be careful when I say that. I'm not saying you come into the confession and you're barely human. No, that's not what I'm saying. Is I'm saying that uh, you know, in your humanity, the way that God created you is not as sinful, but we do have something uh, fallen about our nature, right? It's deprived of certain grace, but not depraved. There's something fallen about our nature, but we are not totally corrupt, we believe as Catholics. And so this language from the first letter of St. John, that you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that John Paul II beautifully goes into this as a reality, as the historical man, that Jesus is not just talking to the people, you know, not just talking to Adam, uh, not just talking to the people in front of him, but is talking to us as well. And you don't have to look far to realize that you know, we have certain disordered affections, disordered desires that we will sometimes uh, love things and use people, and that's getting it backwards. And so mm. if we can love God above all things, then that's the love that God has created us for. But if we love things before God, then we're falling into that very real threefold concupiscence, this temptation towards disordered relationship and towards temptation, towards sin. 
that's at the heart of what John Paul II is doing. And really, he's setting a foundation for better understanding the way we were created. And so he definitely uses these couple of paragraphs, these sections about setting a foundation to help us better understand, not that we are foundationally sinful, but that we are created good. And Mm -hmm. this fallen world uh, comes from our temptation. And it's Mm -hmm. not something that's natural to the world, but something about our fallen nature that Christ has desired to redeem. Let's talk a little bit about lust, because this is where I think the conversation gets interesting. Two reasons. One, predominantly the crisis of pornography in our culture. There are a lot of people, even people of faith, more so often our Protestant uh, friends of mine, who will kind of try to combat that porn's not that big of a deal. And even people, Catholic people will say this too, but I really grew up with a lot of Protestant friends, and it was interesting to see many of whom just said, what's the big deal? You know, you're not actually doing anything, but it goes back to this statement of Jesus in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, that even to desire her, you've already committed a sin with her in your heart. And it's interesting because there was a big debate earlier this year going on yet again when Matt Frad, the Catholic speaker, had Dennis Prager on. And I grew up on Dennis Prager, and I remember as a little kid hearing him on talk radio, and he would always talk about how lust was a good thing. Lust is great. There's nothing wrong with lust. There should be passion. And parsing it out, he wasn't just talking about passion. He thinks lust is okay. You can think and indulge whatever you want in your mind with a person. And there's fundamentally a difference between us and looking at this, and even interestingly between For example, our Jewish counterparts on this topic, because what Jesus is saying is that, no, it's not just the physical action. It's actually what you think. And so I think it's important when we're talking about that, Father Tim, to emphasize there's a difference between passion and lust. Passion is a great thing. We even used to talk historically more about eros, right, that love of passion as a good thing, as long as that's not exclusively the only thing that is had. And even Pope St. John Paul II talks about that in his writing, that historically we talk about eros as a good thing. Someone should desire their spouse or desire the person they're going to marry. But again, virtue needs to enter into the conversation. And so let's talk about that because I think we live in a culture that says, I can consume whatever content and think about anything I want, whether it's porn or it's a movie with inappropriate scenes, shows, you name it. But we can sin with our eyes, and I think that's so significant. We can sin within our minds as well. Right, and John Paul II makes it very clear that this look, this gaze upon the other outside of the sacrament of marriage can be a sinful thing. And uh, he has a very interesting section where he, he suggests that a married man can look at his wife with desire, with attraction, uh, but that it is something that must be purified by the sacrament of matrimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, to look at a woman in that way outside of marriage, it becomes a sinful thing because you're desiring that union uh, with somebody that you're not married to and you don't have the grace of the sacraments to purify that. And that's not to say that a, a husband can look at his wife any way that he wants to that right. will fulfill his pleasure and his desire in a disordered way. That's not what John Paul II is saying He's saying it within the context of marriage where you have the grace of the sacrament purifying your heart, that it's not a bad thing to look at your spouse and to to love them and to appreciate the beauty, their physical beauty. That's not a bad thing. But even within that context, you have to be aware of what desire still needs to be purified in your own right. heart. When it comes to something like pornography, you know, somebody could say, oh, well, you know, I, I'm not hurting anyone else. 
uh, you know, there's so much to say just about the, the industry and, and giving any kind of mm-hmm. business to the industry is, can be a sinful thing. But what it does to your own heart is, you know, what is it they say about pornography? You know, you, you demand everything of the people that you're looking at and they demand nothing of you. That shrinks a heart and makes it impossible to love, you know, let alone those people that you might be looking at. But the other people in your life, it becomes impossible to love them with the love of God because you've only filled your heart with this desire to be pleased, to receive pleasure from others without having to, you know, give pleasure to them in a healthy, holy way without having anything demanded of you. And that can do nothing but shrink a heart and make it more shallow. So, you know, people may say, oh, pornography, I'm not hurting anyone when I'm doing this in the privacy of my own home. Like, yeah, but your heart is is being shrunk and made shallow and smaller, you will find yourself incapable of loving the way that God wants you to love other people. Mm. And, you know, this isn't meant as a judgment on those who might be mired in an addiction to pornography, but to be aware, and you can probably tell yourself if that is you, what it's doing to your heart and, and how horrible it feels to be unable to love another person deeply because you're only loving yourself through that experience and nothing is being demanded of you. And that is the kind of love that Jesus on the cross calls us to. So to be unable to love that way, it, it very much shrinks, shallows, and makes smaller the heart of a Christian. Mm. And I think that another way to show this, too, when you're seeing the difference within the context of marriage, of being purified, your desire being purified by the sacrament, you also have to call within marriage, you're called to serve and love and embrace the whole person, to mm-hmm. not just reduce them to their body parts and to pleasure, but you're joining a life together and service and communion. So there is a lot that can go wrong. There's a lot, I mean, lust can occur within marriage too if you are simply reducing, looking at someone in a reductive way. And I love in the translation that Pope mm-hmm. St. John Paul II actually puts in parentheses in the translation of Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her, and he says in a reductive way, Pope St. John Paul II adds that, has already committed adultery with her in his heart where you're exclusively reducing her and so we are looking at this from a holistic perspective of embracing the whole person you're at service this is why a man kneels down in proposing to a woman he's giving up his entirety his service his protection all that he is to her and he's to lead her through his virtuous example. Father Tim, Pope St. John Paul II refers to shame as a boundary experience or a limit experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says this because prior to the fall, there was no shame. There was comfort and nudity. There was comfort in understanding the purpose and function of the body in the generative dimension of new life. But what happens is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we read what's so interesting is that Adam and Eve were naked, we read, and they felt no shame. But then the fall comes and Adam and Eve realize their nakedness. Pope St. John Paul II says that shame touches in that moment the deepest level and seems to shake the very foundation of their existence. So what he's saying is that suddenly that first experience after the fall is they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. They hid themselves from him. They were afraid. They covered themselves. And it's so fascinating that Pope St. John Paul II, Father Tim, ties together fear and shame. He says a certain fear is always part of the very essence of shame. And yet what we see Adam do is that he points to his fear, but he doesn't point to the actual problem. He points to that discomfort that was present within the sin. 
Yeah, and, and pointing to that, and you could say in a way it's almost like when someone makes a victim of themselves, I'm, I'm not you know, denigrating actual victims, but when someone makes a victim of themselves without acknowledging what they've done wrong, that could be a negative way of expressing this. And I like to make a distinction between humility and humiliation, mm. uh, that Adam and Eve could have experienced this in humility, in, oh, we've just been attacked by the serpent, but we didn't give in because we want our hearts to grow larger in this experience of weakness. But rather, they experience the fall and experience their nakedness now as humiliation, which instead of making their hearts larger and deeper, it shallows it, right? It makes their hearts even smaller. And so humility can uh, can be something that makes our souls bigger and greater and grander. But the act of humiliation makes us want to hide. And so the nakedness goes from being this this humbling thing, which reveals our hearts completely, and reveals the image of God in us and actually allows us to have dominion over creation, it corrupts it, twists it, and turns it upside down so that now our nakedness is a shameful thing that we, that we must hide, that we're afraid reveals too much of ourselves and ultimately, you know, kind of humiliates us and turns it backwards. So now we're under the dominion of the creation around us through our weakness and our ability to get sick and to be hurt and to die. And so it's this great twisting where the serpent could not create anything of his own, but he could only make us doubt God's goodness. And John Paul II, I love the language he uses here to describe what the serpent's action is against Eve, is that he leads her to doubt the goodness and the gift, the the denial and the doubting of the gift. And that just makes my heart break that that was the enemy's weapon against us and continues to be, is not to attack us physically, but to make us doubt God's goodness and that's what happened in the garden, and that's what turned nakedness into shame. It reminds you of what Pope St. John Paul II says when he says, a man in some way loses the original certainty of the image mm-hmm. of God that was expressed in the body. And I thought that line was so profound. I'll just say it again. Man in some way loses the original certainty of the image of God expressed in the body. So what Pope St. John Paul II is saying is that a man and woman participated in the world in a way that gave deep joy and peace and they lost that, as Pope St. John Paul II says, and that when they lose living in the truth, they lose the very value of their body. But he also said they lose simplicity as well. Mm. Right. And that language of loss, he also says that concupiscence is a lack. There's something lacking uh, now. And, and original sin, we could think of something that's attached itself to our hearts. But I, I actually like the language as well, that it is something lacking from us, our sonship, our daughterhood. In our relationship with God, that there is now something lacking. And so concupiscence doesn't add anything to our humanity. It's actually having taken away what best expresses our humanity in nakedness. And we think of it as a vulnerability. And you know, ultimately, the body is meant to be sacramental. It's meant to reveal the mystery of the human person. It's a visible sign of invisible, the invisible beauty of our humanity. And you know, the language I love to use with my juniors as I teach them sacraments is sacraments are efficacious. They do what they say they're going to do. They do what they point to. They don't just point to heaven. They bring heaven down. And our bodies were meant to do that from the beginning, but the enemy has twisted that. And instead of revealing heavenly realities of our humanity, our nakedness is something that, that shames us, that makes us want to hide those things. And so that, that was the greatest corruption that the enemy worked in the garden. And isn't that the joy of the theology of the body that Jesus is here in 
his coming, his life, death, and resurrection to give himself to us, to present the grace necessary to live that original state of happiness, to live in joy and peace and in simplicity. Yet again, that's what the coming of Jesus Christ is all about. Father Tim Grumbach here on Trending with Tim Ray. Thank you so much for joining me in unpacking Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body in this series. Don't miss an episode. We're posting all of the Theology of the Body series on the podcast, relevantradio.com. Why do we struggle to understand our bodies today? This is a question. There's discontinuity everywhere from the experience of going through puberty and the discomfort and dislike of your body to struggling with weight, to struggling with not having weight, but thinking there's something wrong with your body. Body dysmorphia is very common today. We have the challenge of the gender dysphoria that many people are experiencing and even the fact that people encourage gender dysphoria. People encourage you to identify something other than what you are. The cruelty, if you look at what's happening on social media, is unbelievable with children. A child will share on social media that they feel ugly today. And while there could be a slew of people saying, no, you aren't, there's also a slew of children continuing to knock that person down, speaking lies. We see this a misunderstanding of our body, this confusion, and we see it For example, even with the discontinuity within marriage, family life, dating, the avoidance of pregnancy, the dislike of motherhood and fatherhood, all of this is chaos with regard to the proper purpose of our bodies. And when I was reading Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body this week, the Catechetical Talk 28 is so relevant to what's happening. Pope St. John Paul II, as we're walking through our Theology of the Body series, unpacking the full depth of what is the antidote to all of these crises of our culture today, he says that the specific difficulty occurring right now is in sensing the essential elements of our own body. The essentiality of one's own body, he said, is the problem. We don't see this as easy after the fall. Prior to the fall, that original sense of unity and understanding of us before one another, even in that nakedness without shame, all of it was clear. But after the fall, what happens? The body, Pope St. John Paul II says, is no longer subject to the spirit as it was in that original state of innocence, that inner original state of happiness in the garden. But after the fall, because of the fall, because of concupiscence, Within ourselves, we carry, Pope St. John Paul II says, a constant hotbed of resistance against the Spirit. And this threatens in some way, he says, the unity we experience as a person, both individually, the unity within our own bodies, but also unity within the context of nature in other people. He said that this disunity, this hotbed of resistance, is particularly rooted in the very constitution of our person that post fall after that original state of union and innocence and nakedness and the spousal meaning the body the clarity with regard to the generative dimension of creating new life and the mystery and gift that that was after the fall all of this turns into this structure 
that lacks self-possession, as Pope St. John Paul II says, and lacks self-dominion. Prior to the fall, the body and soul, the spirit, were all connected to one another. There was a blueprint for the human person, for human interaction. There was continuity, not discontinuity. There was self-possession. There was confidence. There was self-dominion occurring within the human person. There was a simplicity, as Pope St. John Paul II refers to, in the body. That simplicity and naturalness that occurred prior to the fall is gone today with concupiscence. This is why the culture who has turned its back on God says, you do you. If you want to, quote, marry someone of the same sex, do it. Love is love. If you want to dress as a woman, but you're really a man, go for it. If you want to use a women's restroom, but you're a man, fine by me. If you would like to compete on the women's sports team, that's okay. You should be able to do whatever you want. Notice all those things I said in particular really do hurt women. Sexual immorality, sexual discontinuity, and disorientation hurt men and women, but they hurt women even more so. Because women are meant to be protected and respected by the people in institutions of society. Why? Don't be offended by it if you're a woman. It's because we have the potential for new human life. Our bodies were wired to be more dependent upon others. In our physical strength, in our emotional makeup, we're made for complementarity, we're made for communion, we're made for having children. It's not the only thing we're made for, but it's one of the great gifts and mysteries. Yet this discontinuity that happened after the fall is what Pope St. John Paul II is saying, that that interior imbalance is occurring, that imminent shame that we experience in our behavior. For this reason, Pope St. John Paul II says that that imminent and at the same time sexual shame is always, at least directly, relative, and that it particularly approaches or is directed at people we know in particular relationships. So Pope St. John Paul II is talking about how our shame that we experience as a result of the fall and this discontinuity with our own bodies and in our interaction with others. He said it's always relative in the respect that it is related to a particular person. Our personal discontinuity with our own bodies, our discontinuity with our own relationships, in particular sexual relationships, or sexual relation and perspective of us before others. This is why we're unpacking what Pope St. John Paul II is drawing our eyes to, and that is the appeal that Jesus Christ makes to the human heart, that even to look at a person lustfully shows that we've already committed a sin if we're indulging in thoughts, rather than if we experience a disordered thought, okay, hey, it's there, move past it. Instead, we indulge or act out on it. But what Jesus Christ is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, as we're unpacking currently in our Theology of the Body series, is that to even look at someone in a way that is destructive, that is degrading, is already committing a sin in a reductive way, as John Paul II says. And so we're being called in the light of Jesus Christ and his grace to look at that original state of the human person in the garden, see the discontinuity we have after the fall, and turn to God's grace and mercy to rediscover that lost understanding of the human person. If you're a woman as a woman, if you're a man as a man, 
It's interesting because Pope St. John Paul II talks about this from the perspective of psychology as well as theology. And he talks about how from a psychological perspective, it's understood that there is a fallen human nature. And it's talked about often in terms of values that are desired and that need to be appeased and that we have fundamental desires that need to be met, scratches that need to be itched, that they're fundamental to the human being. And this is understood within psychology as desire and need. Yet from a Catholic biblical anthropology, we actually understand this as the fact that we have a human nature. That the human nature, the human person, when our spirit is distanced from the original simplicity, as Pope St. John Paul II says, when it's distanced from that original simplicity, we lose the fullness of the value of our bodies and ourselves in totality. And this is why Jesus Christ appealed in the Sermon on the Mount to the heart. That written on our hearts is God's covenant. It's there. It's relevant. It's important for us to turn to God in that desire of, Lord, I feel this discontinuity within myself, but I still seek to live out that incredible vision and mission you have for my life. We see in St. Paul, St. Paul's work, he talks about this. That God's covenant is written on our hearts. Even in the Old Testament, the prophets prophesied Jeremiah and Ezekiel about how God would animate our bodies, our dead bodies, that he would pick up our bones and animate them, helping them to function according to God's law. That God would write on our stony hearts. What does a stony heart mean? A heart turned away from God. That on our stony hearts, he would write and implant his covenant upon our hearts so that we can return to that original state as God intended, that original correct orientation, that simplicity of the body, where we see the fullness of the value of our body and others. This is what theology of the body is unpacking. That in the midst of this misunderstanding of the body, whether it be through the process of puberty, whether it be the discontinuity with gender dysphoria today, the brokenness within marital relationships, the taking and aggression within dating relationships, the heartbreak of having children outside of marriage, the heartbreak of the bodily damage done by sexually transmitted diseases, the impact on fertility and infertility, all of this is connected to when we misunderstand what our bodies are made for. And we can only understand that fundamentally within the context of our faith, a human biblical anthropology that is theological and philosophical. And I think that's what's so wonderful to unpack and that we're understanding the proper order to our bodies, and that God intended it from the beginning, and that this is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to open the gates of heaven, to fill us with his grace and mercy through the sacrament of reconciliation, through the sacrament of communion, so that we can be conformed and united to the body of Christ and his image, his blueprint that he has for you and I, and for future generations, that it's always been that same desire for God to be united with us, but that he gave us free will. And in the face of our fallen nature, we're called to regain a greater understanding and again of the mystery of Christ. And again, that blueprint for our bodies. This act, the National Strategy for Social Connection Act, that's sitting in a Senate committee that if passed would actually create a federal office to combat loneliness and isolation. We don't need a federal office to combat this. We need God. We need to get over ourselves. I just explained 
all of this, but I think it really is tied into where we're at in our series of Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. He is inviting us to discover a sense of self that is so deeply rooted in God and intended by God from the beginning that we should take a moment of pause to listen to what he's saying. And in this specific talk, Catechetical Talk 29, Pope St. John Paul II is really focusing on this topic of why communication is damaged between men and women. And it really is a bird's eye view of unfolding this brokenness. Why, when I say something to my husband that I think is so clear, he doesn't understand it. And there might be this animosity that occurs in that dynamic. Why there's this turmoil between a radical feminist movement against this idea of patriarchy. Earlier this week, we dove into the lost sense of self that we have in that lost idea of simplicity and clarity that God intended for our bodies from the dawn of creation. And that was there prior to the fall and to which we need to rediscover in a grace-filled life. God has written his commandments on our hearts, but do we have the formed consciences to listen to our conscience, to listen in a rightly ordered way to our heart? With the fall of Adam and Eve, that is the turning of our backs on God's plan, we brought chaos and disorder and disorientation to ourselves, our sense of self, and our understanding of others. So now we have to unravel the meaning of our own bodies for our own sake and for communicating to others. Communication today comes with difficulty, whether it be communicating what we have to say to others, what we care about, whether it's a difficulty in understanding other people or even simply cooperating with someone else or appreciating the differences and communicating the appreciation for those differences rather than disliking, avoiding, criticizing, or as the American Psychological Association did, labeling differences between men and women as toxic. Prior to the fall, Men and women that carried each within their own bodies, what Pope St. John Paul II says, an original power of communicating themselves to each other. That's really powerful. This is a line from his theology of the body. He says that men and women prior to the fall, he says this, had a way of communicating each, to each other with an original power of communication within themselves. So in other words, understanding one another, expressing your thoughts, expressing yourself to someone else was simple. That's all been shattered with our fallen human nature, with concupiscence, even with the incredible sanctifying grace of the sacrament of baptism that wipes away the stain of original sin. We still have a fallen nature, concupiscence, that tendency towards sin, and we need to fight to remain in a state of sanctifying grace. My daughters are young, two and a half and eight months. And what's so powerful and frightening about being a mother is that the church actually beckons us as parents to preserve our children in their baptismal grace so that they do not lose it. And so that they 
are equipped with self-knowledge of their personal faults and challenges and with strengthening tools from prayer and the sacraments to concrete things to do to combat their own concupiscence, their own bad habits and tendency towards sin. The church actually historically has believed that you can form a child in very young years to know how to be preserved in grace. This is why historically many of our saints were so young. Today we often speak of how wisdom comes with age, and I do agree with that. I think the better way to say that is I think people often today say wisdom comes in hindsight. But if you look at the history of the saints, the saints are young. Many saints, not all of them, but many saints died young. I think of St. Maria Goretti. I think of St. Gianna, who was in the thick of being a mother. St. Maria Goretti, who died at a very young age. I think, was, was she 12? Very young. You look at St. Therese of Lisieux. We have many young saints. And so, that, again, that brings me back to this idea that communicating ourselves, our basic self-understanding was shattered. A simple understanding of communication was gone. I think about it. Sorry, gentlemen. I can no longer interpret your man grunts thanks to Adam and Eve. And ladies, the men just can't understand our tears or when we say we're fine. I jest, but kind of. Again, we don't understand each other and the way men and women really do communicate in radically different ways. After the fall, Adam and Eve first clothed themselves. It's the very first thing. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And prior to the fall, they were comfort in the midst of their nakedness. Once they took the apple, once they ate that fruit, that forbidden fruit, the first thing they did was hide themselves as God walked in the garden calling out to them. St. John Paul II says the man and the woman hide their own bodies before each other and especially their sexual differentiation. That is the reciprocal communion. That communion between each other was damaged. And think about it this way. It wasn't only damage between Adam and Eve. What happens when we sever our, our vertical relationship with God is all of our other relationships become disoriented and disordered between the male and female between parent and child, between us and strangers, between us and how we use creation and created goods. Pope St. John Paul II says that what disappeared was the simplicity and purity of the original experience that before helped with a focus of the singular fullness of mutual self-communication. So what he says is there's a simplicity and purity within communicating that was abolished. He said the diversity of femaleness and maleness was lost. That is the understanding of self-donation and the gratitude for the difference of others. So giving ourselves who are different from us to them and receiving others. I really find this line fascinating. The diversity of female and maleness was lost. What does that mean? It's funny because as we live in a culture that focuses so significantly on diversity and mandated diversity today, 
perhaps it's a step in the wrong direction in an effort for a step in the right direction. In the respect that perhaps we're talking about diversity in all the wrong ways, when in reality, the diversity that we need to embrace is actually a value of ourselves and a value of seeing others as a good, even when different. So when Pope St. John Paul II talks about this diversity of femaleness and maleness being lost, what does this mean? We no longer understand ourselves, but we also struggle to communicate ourselves to others and to understand other people. If you're just joining me, you're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. We're unpacking Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, unraveling the tangle that we created and what it means to be male and female at the fall, at the dawn of creation, or after the dawn of creation, the original value of who and what we were was so perfectly understood, that state of original innocence, as we've explained here on Trending. But even in the face of that fallen human nature, and that sinful choice you and I make over and over again, that blueprint of goodness, original goodness that God intended, that put us in a state of original happiness, it's still there. It's a blueprint. St. Paul talks about how it's written on the human heart. This is why when Jesus is approached and is discussing this idea of lust and committing adultery, he said that someone who even looks upon a woman to desire her has already committed adultery in his heart. Why does Jesus say this? Because the law of God is written on our hearts. Even in the midst of our brokenness, it's still there. We know better. The desire for God is there, and so is the desire for another person. We see this simply in the desire for marriage. We see this in a disordered way, in the desire to have a person, mistakenly trying to find that person and create a false sense of, quote, marriage in same-sex relationships. Meaning is still written to our bodies, yet we need God to help us reorient our own self-understanding and to bring order to the distorted and disoriented view we have of others and how we connect to them. What happened was we lost sight of God, but we also lost the image of God. God created us a male and female. God created us in his image and likeness. We've explained this in this series on Theology of the Body, and I hope that if you're just joining us, you've not been pulling into all of these talks that we posted on the trending podcast, that you will go back and listen, because that understanding of knowing that God created you in a state of original innocence, it's empowering in the respect that we know this is God's view for us, to see us as good and wonderfully made. But in the midst of our fallen nature, we have to be brought back into the order of Jesus Christ, and that is done by His church, done by His graces. And so when we talk about what's happening today, it's because we've not just lost sight of God, we've lost sight of the image of God within ourselves. Again, Romans chapter 1 summarizes the crises of our culture. We've turned our backs on the Creator, and so the creatures, you and I, become unintelligible. Pope St. John Paul II spends a lot of time in Theology of the Body talking about shame. It comes up over and over again. Shame is a word we really hate. I remember when I grew up 
in high school, being exposed to Theology of the Body, loved it. But it wasn't until I was in college that I actually read the text over a commentary. And the first time I read it, one of the things that really stood out to me was this idea of shame. And in the 21st century, we don't like that word. We almost think that it's something wrong. It's almost a dirty word to us in our culture. But Pope St. John Paul II explains shame as a boundary experience that if we read in the sacred scripture prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and they did not know shame. They weren't uncomfortable. It wasn't until after the fall they hide themselves. They try to clothe themselves. Yet with shame, with this understanding of clarity between the relationship of man and woman prior to the fall, we can actually better understand the role of shame as a good thing. Shame is a boundary experience post-fall. It allows us to understand better the original value of that unifying dimension of our bodies, that loss, original certainty of our relationships, of the sexual complementarity, the spousal meaning of the body, the purpose for our the purpose for creating new life, that generative meaning, and that this is what we have to rediscover. Pope St. John Paul II says the imbalance of the original meaning of bodily unity manifests itself in shame. So that imbalance between man and woman and the imbalance within sexual complementarity, even though we still desire it, yet it's a distorted. It reveals itself in shame. That is fascinating. I challenge you to ponder within your own life where you experience shame and how the bandit can be ripped off to point to the deeper wound going on rather than saying, I don't like being afraid. I don't like feeling objectified. I don't like seeing other people objectified. We shouldn't like any of those things, but instead go to the root, go to the deeper cause and problem within yourself rather than being annoyed by the feeling of your response. Pope St. John Paul II talks about the communion of persons was given up after the, because of the fall. In place of the original unitive and generative understanding of our bodies, suddenly, get this, we turned to a mere sensation of sexuality with regard to other human beings. So what happened? Instead of understanding the unitive element of our human sexuality, instead of understanding the generative dimension as the Algebra body unpacks, that is the ability to create new life and celebrating that that is part of marriage, not trying to get rid of it, not saying, you know, I want to get married, but I don't want to have children. Well, what's that? What is that? That's a disorientation from the blueprint for the body. And someone might say, okay, well, that's what God intended, but I don't think I'd be a good parent. I don't want to be a parent. Well, then don't get married. Because what happens is what Pope St. John Paul II says. Suddenly the body becomes, he says this, the mere sensation of sexuality with regard to the other human being. So we forfeit that incredible complementarity and self-communication and the generative life-creating dimension of sexuality, and we turn it into a sensation of sexuality with regard to the other human being. The mere sensation, that is pleasure, how you enjoy yourself. Enjoyment is wonderful, but that's not the purpose. That's not the end-all be-all. Mark Regnerus is a sociologist. He wrote a book called Cheap Sex, and in that book, I remember him commenting to something along the lines of how today the hookup culture and even many marriages, how we interact as men and women in human sexuality, it's like, it's, this is really raw and disgusting, but it's like a pieces of meat rubbing up against each other. 
I will never forget when I first heard that line because I was thinking about two steaks just rubbing up against each other. And it was gross. It was nasty. You think of animals. You think of animals who are mating. And yet, if we have been un unraveling the theology of the body with Pope St. John Paul II, we understand that in the creation account, something very fundamental that we talked about was that the original state of the human person, human person, himself, herself, is good and radically different and separate from the rest of creation, particularly animals. That's why the human person has dominion over the animals. And that we need to overcome this lost sense of who we are in this depravity of turning ourselves merely to, as Pope St. John Paul II says, the sensations that we're chasing. The law of God is written on our hearts. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to look at, that even for a man to look at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Because we know better. We desire more. We have a sense of shame. A man has a sense of shame even in doing that. Yet the world says, stifle it, stifle it, ignore shame. Shame is a function. It's like the trigger law that God has written into our bodies to help us respond to the brokenness of our human nature. Pope St. John Paul II said in this 29th catechetical talk that we've been diving into today, that shame is the symptom of man's detachment from love. That is, prior to shame setting in after the fall, we fully, we no longer fully participated in the mystery of creation. We became detached from rightly ordered love. I think the takeaway is to understand that God's law is still written on our hearts, although we come to it in a more challenging way, that we need God's grace. We need to follow a well-formed heart and conscience. We need to regain that sense of trust in our bodies that God wrote into them, our body and soul. We need to rediscover the communication of our body so that we can communicate to others and embrace the grace God is presenting to us. Preserve that salvific grace that God has given to you. Go to confession. Don't waste your time trying to fill the void with getting your spouse to understand perfectly what you're trying to say. Don't waste your time by lamenting the fact that you're single and you wish you were married. Don't waste your time despairing over an, over an infertility crisis. Don't waste your time because your children aren't talking to you and you're alone. Don't waste your time. Fill yourself up with God. That will answer the crisis of loneliness and isolation that is happening today, but we have to embrace God and look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I have to reject this overemphasis on myself. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Let's talk about the solution. Let's talk about the answer. Later in the series of Theology of the Body, we will talk about the Eucharist, but I want to talk about the Eucharist now because the Eucharist is the answer of what we need in this loneliness and isolation and despair and languishing that people are experiencing today, that you are experiencing. Are you languishing? Are you sorrowful? Are you angry? Are you desiring a friend? Do you want the government to solve all your problems, such as this new governmental office potentially in the books for national strategy for social connection? No, we need to return to God. And that starts with 
part of the reason why there is a national revival on the body of Christ, the Eucharist. Let's talk about the Eucharist. We've discussed today on Trending, and I hope that you'll go and listen to the podcast because this was one of those episodes that really is meant to be listened to in its entirety. And if you're on your way home from work or cooking a meal, whatever you're doing right now, you will benefit from listening to it in its entirety. It is a challenge for me. It is a challenge for you. What's happening? Happening? What is the cure to loneliness and isolation in our culture? That's what we're diving into. There's a National Strategy for Social Connection Act sitting in the Senate right now. When it, when the Senate starts working through all of these various bills and acts, this will be one of them. I wouldn't be surprised if it's pushed forward. I do not think we need a government department for loneliness and isolation. That's what it would create. And the answer is we need God and we need to get over ourselves. And that's what we've discussed all hour and understanding why we struggle to get over ourselves. But the real answer is Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, that we receive him, body, blood, soul, and divinity. God alone completes us. Don't look for your spouse or a spouse to make you feel good. Don't look for a friend or your child or whoever it is to give you that affirmation, that contentedness, that peace, because they never will. And if they do for a moment, it is fleeting. Emotion is fleeting. God alone satisfies. Fill up your life with God. And I want to, when I was thinking about this, Earlier today, I kept thinking about this fabulous, fabulous, I really hope you will read it, this fabulous apostolic exhortation by Pope Benedict XVI, that God rest his soul in peace. Pray for his soul. It's important to pray for the dead. And this apostolic exhortation, Sacramentum Caritatis, that is the sacrament of charity, the sacrament of love. It is fantastic, and there is much to be said even of the very first paragraph of this. You could just sit for hours meditating on it. Pope Benedict XVI starts Sacramentum Caritatis saying, The mystery of faith, with these words spoken immediately. Oops, sorry, I'm reading from the wrong spot. This is what happens when I turn the wrong page. He says, <laughs> sorry, the sacrament of charity, the Holy Eucharist is the gift that Jesus makes of himself, thus revealing to us God's infinite love for every man and woman. This wondrous sacrament makes manifest that greater love, which led him to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did indeed love them to the end. In those words, the evangelist, that is John in the Gospel of John, introduces Christ's act of immense humility. I want to pause there and we'll we'll dive into this a little bit. So, Pope Emeritus Benedict is saying the sacrament of charity, that is the Holy Eucharist, is the gift that Jesus makes of himself for you and I, for every human being. Understand that Jesus Christ offered himself on the cross And with his sacrifice, he gave his entire body for you and I. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. God is giving us his very life. Pope Benedict then says, This reveals to us God's infinite love for every man and woman. Are you struggling? Are you 
lonely? Are you isolated? Are you looking for relationships, for people, for a baby, for a spouse, for someone, for your child, your adult child to fill your void? Look no further than God himself. This wondrous sacrament, Pope, Emerit- or Pope Benedict says, makes manifest that greater love that led Jesus to lay down his life for his friends. We read in the Gospel of John that Jesus loved his friends and he loved them to the end. We read this in John chapter 13. What does it mean to love someone to the end? Well, Pope Benedict is saying, Pope Benedict XVI is saying that this is where John and his gospel is introducing us to Jesus Christ's act of what he calls immense humility. One way to better understand the Eucharist, to better understand the sacrifice, the giving of Jesus Christ's body to you and I on the cross, is by going back to the Last Supper. I remember when I was in college and in my theology class with Dr. Michael Barber, he would emphasize over and over again that the sacrifice of Calvary, the sacrifice on the cross, meant nothing if we didn't understand the Last Supper. Why? Because Jesus Christ is giving himself to us in the Eucharist. This is my body given up for you. This is my blood given up for you of the new and everlasting covenant. He wants us to live with us into eternity with him, but he's offering us his life here and now on earth. Did you know that you can live in a state of sanctifying grace here on earth? You can be a living, breathing saint now. Why don't we? What are we afraid of? What we're afraid of is we're trying to meet every single one of our desires and that silent cultural law that's telling you what to do to be happy in pop culture. What is significant about the Last Supper is not only the word after word that we hear at Mass, this is my body given up for you, the words of consecration, the fact that God is telling us to literally eat his body and drink his blood. And if you have any doubt about the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, just read John chapter 6. Jesus is telling us to gnaw on his flesh and to drink his blood. This was scandalous. This is why a lot of his followers walked away and never came back early on in his public ministry. Jesus in the washing of the feet at the Last Supper shows us something fundamental. This is what we've been looking at all hour. That we need to get uncomfortable. We need God alone and we need to get over ourselves. What did Jesus do and how radical was it that he washed the feet of his disciples, of his apostles? He tied a towel around himself. He got down on the ground and he cleaned the feet of 12 filthy men. Why do I call them 12 filthy men? Because they lived at the time of Christ when cleanliness standards were different and the way people traveled by foot and often in sandals led to very dirty feet. I know a thing or two about this because some of my dearest friends have come from the Middle Eastern cultures. My husband's Lebanese and many of my friends came from the Chaldean culture. And it was interesting. I learned, I remember one day that it's rude to like put your, show the bottom of your shoe or the bottom of your foot to someone. And 
part of that is part of this old culture understanding that feet were dirty and we should understand feet as dirty still. And so for Jesus to stoop down, to get down on the ground and wash the feet, this is why it was so humiliating for Peter. He's telling Jesus, God forbid you will wash my feet. And Jesus tells him, if you don't let me wash your feet, you will not have life within me. And so then Peter, who's always so dramatic in my opinion, says, okay, Jesus, then wash all of me. And Jesus saying, no, 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 your feet are enough. I'm okay just washing your feet. And yet that towel tied around Jesus' waist and his coming to the feet of his apostles and cleansing their feet was a symbol for us to get uncomfortable, to overcome this culture of loneliness and isolation, to not just tolerate people, but to embrace them even in their brokenness, even in their wrongness. Do not embrace the wrong, but to embrace the person. This is what Jesus does when he comes to us in the Eucharist. He offers his body and his soul to us. That's why John, the beloved apostle in the gospel according to John, says that he laid down his life for his friends. And what did he do? He loved them to the end. Are we willing to do this too? Are we willing to break through the discomfort, the disorientation, disorder, and understand that God alone satisfies? We need his grace to overcome our brokenness. Pope Benedict says in this sacrament, that is the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Lord truly becomes food for us to sanctify our hunger for truth and freedom. He then goes on to say, what does our soul desire more passionately than truth? Each of us has an innate and irrepressible desire for ultimate and definitive truth. Why do we desire truth so desperately? Why is free speech something that we love as Americans? Because we're looking for truth. That's why we even tolerate scandalous things under free speech. What does our soul desire? Pope Benedict saying in this wonderful apostolic exhortation, Sacramentum Caritatis, that what we're searching for, what our soul so desperately needs is truth, and that truth is God himself. He said each of us has an innate and irrepressible desire for ultimate and definitive truth. Again, he said, in this sacrament, the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Lord truly becomes food for us to satisfy our hunger for truth and freedom. God alone satisfies. He is the only relationship that will ever lead you to peace, to joy, to tranquility, to freedom, freedom from anxiety, freedom from sorrow. When I talk about freedom from sorrow, I don't mean that we won't mourn what's happening. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about blessed are those who mourn. What does that mean? To mourn that which separates us from God. I hope as we see in our churches this year, this call to the Eucharistic revival will have the Eucharistic Congress next summer in July in Indianapolis, that you'll join us. Perhaps not in person. That's okay. More importantly, that you join us in the Eucharist. You join us in the union with God himself. The more united we are to God, the more united we are to our neighbor. 
the better the orientation of the chaotic disorder within us. God alone satisfies. Will we only turn to him? Will we only turn to him? Jesus on the cross says he thirsts at a certain point, and then he gives himself over to the Father. That's all he needed. He needed God. He needed God the Father. And we could unpack a whole idea of theology. Did God need anything? No, but in his humanity, he did need something. But in his divinity, he needed nothing. Our fallen human nature needs God. We cry out for God. This is why Jesus, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, said to God the Father in prayer, if you can, if you will, let this cup pass from me. Let this suffering, that even in, as Jesus was human and divine, that human dimension of him was saying, I don't want this. I'd rather turn in on myself and be comfortable. Did he know because he's Jesus Christ and he's God? But look what the life of God can do in your life to radically transform every disorientation every self-seeking desire. Are you struggling? Are you addicted? Are you sorrowful? Are you despairing? Whatever is going on, the solution isn't some medical technology. The solution isn't that new relationship. The solution is God alone. If you've enjoyed the Theology of the Body series with me here on Trending, let me know if you have questions. If you're reading along, I would love to hear from you. The podcast goes up on Saturday of all week content of Theology of the Body. Today we are diving into talks 30 through 33 and it's all about domination and appropriation we hear a lot about cultural appropriation today but today it didn't start with cultural appropriation it started with the appropriation of other people the exploitation of other people so we turn our gaze with pope saint john paul ii to genesis chapter 3 verse 16 those words at the fall of the consequence of severing that life life of grace and the image of God from our understanding of ourselves and each other. We read, your desire shall be for your husband, but he will dominate you. Another interpretation says he will rule over you or lord it over you. And so what we're talking about today is that sense of domination of not just men over women, but we'll see how even that flips on its back of women over men and that desire that a woman has for her husband, how that desire of disorientation and that domination is so damaging for our relationships. A person becomes in this sense through domination and desire, a person becomes an object of appropriation to appropriate, to take we look at something as mine. Pope St. John Paul II spends a ton of his time in this section of the Theology of the Body just talking about the word my, how we refer to something as not just mine, but my spouse, my this, my that, and how there can be a good interpretation of my, but often you just look at my greedy little two-and-a-half-year-old who will say mine and my toy, my this, my that, endlessly ad nauseum, if I don't correct it. Yet we have this childish spirituality as a result of the fall that unless we turn toward God and run to his graces and the sacraments, we struggle because we have that lost sense of the understanding of the gift of our lives, who and what we are and who and what others are in receiving them. The difference between what Pope St. John Paul II calls 
a law of property and versus an object of passion. He starts to unpack these ideas of how we should be looking at someone as, or sorry, not someone, but we should look at things and people and understand this overarching idea of possession, this law of possession, in the respect that we have a sense of responsibility. We have a, a different approach in the respect that something or someone specifically belongs to another in a positive, in a positive definition, rather than this objective possession type of mindset. And he says a possession you put at your service, that is we dispose of possessions as we choose, versus Pope St. John Paul II is calling us to a mindset of a sense of belonging, which would connotate this idea of responsibility and love. Pope St. John Paul II says, Concupiscence pushes man toward the possession of the other as an object and pushes him toward enjoyment. So what he's saying is that we suddenly look at someone else as an object to be enjoyed rather than a person to belong, to belong to one another. He goes on to say that sense of objectifying and enjoying depersonalizes the person and misses the spousal meaning of the body. That is seeking yourself and others as a gift. Pope St. John Paul II is directing us to value the other human being as in a way that is disinterested, looking at them as a gift rather than perpetually objectifying, taking, and using, and appropriating. He actually talks about how we appropriate other people. He t emphasizes that this is essential toward our human anthropology and that we understand what he's explained, he explains this in his book, Love and Responsibility as well, that a person is never a means to an end. We shouldn't look at people as objects to be sought after. We shouldn't look at people as a means to get what we want, enjoyment, pleasure, to fulfill our desire, to dominate. We should always look at other people as people to be loved, embraced, to give ourselves to and to receive that's where he uses that language of belonging that instead of having this mindset where he says we look at people as objects and possessions to have that law of property, that law of responsibility, an all-embracing mindset. A little bit of, I think, a tangent in some respects, but I think relevant, is that today we always focus on being a consumer of things, a consumer of people. We want people to fit perfectly into the box of our expectation and desire. And I remember this made me think of sometimes, you know, people, when they come to church, when they go to mass, they're not always there completely in subscribing to everything the church teaches or understanding the right way to dress or whatever it might be. And I was thinking about how a priest friend of mine was recently telling me a story about this young woman who kept coming to mass and she was dressed really inappropriately. And she'd sit right there on the front on the side, just to the side of the altar. And he noticed, but he thought, you know, it's a good thing that she's coming to Mass. And and one day, suddenly, she wasn't there. And it happened to be within that same week, someone from the church, a woman came up and said, Oh, I told that woman who kept, kept coming up to the church and sitting right in front of you so inappropriately that she shouldn't come here dressed like that. And she told her off, and lo and behold, the woman stopped coming to church. Never came again. And it made me think of how we want people to fit into even the boxes of correctness. We want their full and perfect conversion. And if we don't think that they are meeting that conversion the way it should be met, we get angry. We tell them off. 
And yet, there's a culture where we need to return the, to this idea of agreeing to disagree and still embracing the person. Still allowing someone to have that sense, as Pope St. John Paul II said, of belonging. Ironically, I have a similar story right now while I'm going to Mass. There, there's a young couple who keeps sitting just to the right of me in the church pew. And this couple does not look like a couple you would expect to be going to Sunday Mass. And again, these expectations that we have. Tattooed, piercings, the woman's wearing a very scandalous dress. But I'll tell you what, I can tell that she's trying to dress up and nicely for Mass, even though it obviously is apparent that she doesn't know what it means to dress up nicely. But they keep coming week after week after week. I think it's incredible. I think it's awesome. I pray no one harasses them. And I hope people smile and acknowledge them and welcome them as they see them. It makes me think of another story a couple years ago. Because this is all about embracing, making people feel like they belong. Still expecting conversion, but allowing that conversion, that change of clothing and modesty to unfold. A couple of years ago when I was living in the Midwest, there was a couple that would be at Mass each day. They were pregnant, and one day the woman came with her baby. They had had a baby. Both showed up with piercings and tattoos and dressed again not like you would expect people to dress, in rather a gothic way. And as the weeks went by one after another i saw an incredible transformation people were kind to them and welcoming and said hello i saw the young woman which by the way before had dressed rather gender neutral i guess you could say started to dress in a more feminine way started to dress up for mass both of them started to dress for the occasion the the father of the baby started to dress in a suit the woman was dressing in a presentable way that's appropriate for church they started removing their piercings for Mass. It was a really neat unfolding to see over the course of a year or so. But that can't happen if we don't allow people to have a sense of belonging while still expecting a transformation. What I'm getting at is that we often objectify strangers, even within our own churches, not just our spouses or people we're looking to date or are interested in. But our consumer mindsets often get in the way in general. My things, my way. Even the good things, my way. Rather than sometimes allowing them to unfold. Getting back to this passage in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he will dominate you. We're focusing on the idea of desire and domination. With that idea of domination, Pope St. John Paul II comments and says if a man relates to a woman in such a way that he considers her only as an object to appropriate and not as a gift he condemns himself at the same time to become on his part too only an object of appropriation for her and not a gift in other words if a man tries to dominate and appropriate a woman it flips on its back and he too becomes an object to be used to be appropriated to be taken Pope St. John Paul II talks about this terrain of appropriation of the person and the problem with it. He says the human body in its masculinity and femininity has almost lost the power of expressing love. Instead, we demonstrate domination, desire, taking. The good news is, is that the law of God is written on our hearts. St. Paul talks about this in Romans. The prophets speak of this in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The spousal meaning of the body, Pope St. John Paul II says, has not fully been for, become totally foreign to us. So we can still understand the value and gift of our bodies. 
It's not been completely suffocated, he says. It's only habitually threatened. He says the heart has become a battlefield between love and concupiscence. The more concupiscence dominates the heart, the less the heart experiences the spousal meaning of the body. Therefore, he says, the less sensitive the heart becomes to this understanding of the gift of the person. So, posting John Paul II saying, there's good news. The spousal meaning of the body, the gift of self, God's intention for the human person isn't totally foreign to us. It's written on our hearts, but there's a battle a battlefield for what is authentic, true love. And the more we give in to sin, the less sensitive we become to embracing the other and the gift of another person. This is where he then starts to talk about desire more, to understand the significance of desire. And it's challenging for me to read this section in the respect that I think that we need to reevaluate desire. We talk a lot about disordered desires and how we need to not chase after our desires. But if we look at the entire moral tradition of the Catholic Church, although we know there's a difference between good desires and bad desires, the Church actually encourages us even to deny ourselves those good things that we desire. To be temperate. In fact, the Catholic Church teaching for centuries, really prior to the last century, we used to hear a lot more about denying ourselves, even sweet foods, denying ourselves the salt in our foods. The food culture we live in today would be shocking to people 50 or 100 years ago in the sense that we have run away with our desires. And if we want to return to a greater sense of God's view for our lives, we need to embrace that understanding that desire while they can be good can also be set aside fasting is a good thing not just during lent offering someone else your portion that taming of the senses is so important and we can come back to an interior state of freedom which we'll talk about freedom next week here on trending and understand this great grace that God is offering to us in a sacramental life to reorient the God-given vision of the body.